0: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.
1: I have you loud and clear. (laughs)
2: Hello. 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 Welcome. Science.
3: And that is to say, physics, medicine, medicine. nature, or
2: space, time, the brain, life, the universe.
3: Hello. This week, medical uses of cannabis. What's the hype and what's the reality? We hear from the people who grow it and the people who want to use it.
2: Plus, in the news, scientists grow replacement lungs in a lab. Why, a knock on the head can lead to dementia years later. And the very tiny thing that elephants are terrified of. And no, it's not a mouse. I'm Izzy Clark.
3: I'm Chris Smith. And this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, thousands of people die every year on transplant waiting lists. They're just are not enough donor organs to keep up with demand, which is why the announcement this week by scientists in the US that they've managed to grow in a culture vessel called a bioreactor, new human-sized lungs that can be implanted successfully into pigs, is a huge step forward. Joe Nichols is at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston.
4: There are never enough donor organs for people who need to have a lung transplant, and that's people with severe lung disease who we can't do anything for. People that do go onto transplant lists have long waits for organs, and many people even die before they ever receive an organ, and that's been an issue overall in transplantation since the process began.
3: So the issue is one of organ shortage. We just don't have enough donor organs. So what can we do to surmount that?
4: So one of the ways that we have talked about in my research team is finding a way to make lungs for somebody who needs them. And right now that means using lungs that are discarded that can't be used for transplantation and finding another use for them as either a source for cells to create a new lung, to bioengineer a new lung, or is the source of a scaffold and that's the other part of this process that we need. We need both a source of cells and a source of a lung scaffold and we've developed procedures to produce scaffolds from lungs that can't be used for transplantation themselves.
3: So that's the aspiration, that's the goal where we want to be. We can grow someone a bespoke lung or at least a lung that's going to be compatible with them and we can overcome some of these shortcomings of the present situation. What have you got to do in order to make that possible?
4: I would start by making a human scaffold by taking a lung that's been very damaged and has no live cells left in it. Treat it with a special solution that removes all of the cells but leaves behind the proteins that are the structural support proteins that give it the strength and elasticity that a lung needs to have second step is we take another lung again not suitable for transplantation but has live cells in it this time and we remove the cells from all of the parts of the lung that make it a lung and then we prepare to put them together to produce a new lung.
3: So you in summary get the donor lung Get rid of all the cells, leaving behind just this protein scaffolding, which is going to show the cells that are going to be incoming where they need to go. Put it into this bioreactor, which contains nutrient solution. I presume you've got a supply of oxygen there as well to keep these cells alive and to feed them. And then you just slowly add the cells onto this scaffold in order to encourage the right cells to take up residence at the right place.
4: That's exactly what we do and on a regular basis we add in cells or factors that help support this just like a recipe for making a cake. Every time we did this for the study we did it exactly the same way to prove that using these procedures we could consistently develop tissues that were lung tissue.
3: And how long does it take to grow a whole lung of the sort of size a person would need?
4: It takes roughly 30 days at this time to produce something that's still immature that will continue to develop once it's transplanted.
3: So what animals have you done this on? Because people have tried to grow lungs in a dish for small animals in the past.
4: Those studies with small animals were critical to what we're doing now. We've done it in a large animal model. We've done it in pigs. And by the way, we're giving the animal one bioengineered lung. They still have one lung that they can survive on that's their own natural or native lung.
3: And how many pigs have you looked at and what happened to them?
4: So of the four pigs in the study that received bioengineered lungs, they all survived for the length of time that we had wanted them to. So that's 10 hours, two weeks, one month, or two months.
3: Does it work? Does the lung actually appear to be exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide as it should do?
4: That's a huge step. So let's start with a small step. The tissue survives The animals didn't show any respiratory distress or have any fluid development in the lungs or any problems associated with it. The part about oxygenation is a little bit harder because the way that we did this process, we were not going to be able to see gas exchange. But in our next pilot study, we'll actually go for long-term survival of animals. we bring them back after being back in the farm for maybe a year. We block off their ability to breathe from their native lung and we let them breathe on the bioengineered lung alone.
3: Now if uh, the lung is continuing to grow when it goes into the recipient, does this mean then that you could take say a child with cystic fibrosis, a chronic lung condition because of a genetic problem, fix that condition in the new lung that you give them and then that lung would grow with them?
4: That's what our hopes are. Um, even before dealing with something like cystic fibrosis, looking for compassionate use, which is, means that somebody cannot survive unless we provided them with this therapy. Um, perhaps a child that has something called diaphragmatic hernia, where the diaphragm doesn't develop and that blocks development of the lung, these babies cannot survive without some intervention. And that's what we're looking at in terms of first use for this kind of procedure.
3: It's amazing how fast this field is moving, isn't it? Well done to Joan Nichols there, and thank you to her for describing it for us. Her paper was out this week in Science Translational Medicine.
2: Now, you may have heard of the Nobel Prize, but the Fields Medal might be less familiar to you, but it's the equivalent of a Nobel Prize for mathematics. This week, the efforts of four mathematicians were recognised with Fields Medals, and here to explain is Cambridge's favourite mathematician, University Challenge mastermind, and friend of the show, Bobby Seagull. So, before we talk about the winners themselves, what is the background to the Fields Medal?
5: So, the Fields Medal is awarded for outstanding mathematical achievement for existing work. However, unlike the Nobel Prizes, it's only awarded every four years at the International Congress of Mathematicians um, for between two to four mathematicians that represent, I guess, a diversity of mathematical fields. However, there is a catch, there is a condition. A medalist Cannot be aged 40 at the start of the awarding year. So you've got to be 39 or under at the start of 1st of Jan. And this is because the medal also recognizes the promise of future achievement. And whilst the prize fund isn't relevant, there is a 15,000 Canadian dollar award. So about 9,000 British pounds. So I, as you know, I'm a quiz fan. So for those of you who are film buffs, I have a maths related University challenge style start of a 10 quiz question. Are you ready?
2: Oh, of course. So fingers and buzzers. So
5: <laughs> my, my best Paxman voice. Rich 1997 Oscar-nominated best picture film has the actor Robin Williams introduce an unrecognized maths genius to his Fields medalist university friend.
2: Oh, ding, ding, ding! Uh, that is Good Will Hunting. Matt Ten points. Yes. Ten points. Perfect.
5: Yeah. So, if anyone's <laughs> ever seen the film, they actually mention the Fields Medal there. So, definitely go and watch that film.
2: Okay. So, who has won it this year?
5: So this year they've awarded four. They don't always have to award four. I think in 2002 they awarded two winners, but since then they've sort of been encouraged to give four. So the youngest person this year is Peter Scholzer. He's only 30 from Bonn University. Then second we have the Italian Alessio Figali. He's 34 and works at ETH Zurich. And then third, we have a 36-year-old Australian who researches in America called Akshay Venkatesh. And then the fourth winner is someone a bit closer to home.
2: Now, I've heard that this person is at Cambridge University. So what do they work on?
5: Correct. So Professor of Maths in the Department of Pure Maths and Mathematical Statistics is Professor Koucha Burka. So actually, he was raised in the Kurdish region of Western Iran and moved to the UK in about the year 2000. And I think he did his PhD at Nottingham before moving to Cambridge. And his work showed that it was possible to bring order and find connections between apparently unrelated algebraic equations. So just as a reminder, so I'm putting on my Mr. Seagull teacher hat back on. So mathematical equations can be depicted as shapes. So for example, y equals 2x plus 3 is a straight line. And then another one, x squared plus y squared is 9. That's a circle. You still with me? I'm still <laughs> following. Yeah. Yeah. So, algebraic geometry is about studying the shapes that can be described by these equations. And as mathematicians, we try to put an order to these variety of equations. I mean, as a, like as a normal person, if you looked at an animal and you tried to classify them, you might think, oh, some of these have wings, like a seagull, or some of these are carnivorous, like I don't know, a cat eating mice. Uh, but Berker, his work was trying to understand one of three generic categories and these are called Farno varieties. But unfortunately for Burke, his actually original medal, the Fields Medal, was stolen. Arthur left the medal in a briefcase with his mobile and wallet on top of the table and they found the briefcase but not the medal. So oh, this sounds no. like a sad story, but... You know, this is a, it has a fairy tale ending. Um, he was given another medal. And actually, he said that he's become more famous because of this. And actually, the Fields Medal has had actually a bit more traction in the media because of the theft. So actually, in, in a way, the theft has worked out well for mathematics.
2: Not that we're encouraging theft No, at not at all, not at all. <laughs> and so what did the other three work on?
5: Yes. So a lot of Peter Schultz, so he's a young 30-year-old. Um, His research in something called P-adic geometry. And the P, I think, basically stands for prime numbers. And Schultz's main innovation was in something called perfectoid spaces. And that is a real word. And this is a class of fractal structures. And he's essentially built a new bridge between arithmetic and geometry. So here's the first one. So then the Italian Alesso Figali, so his results actually provided a refined mathematical understanding of things that, you know, for example, uh, the shape of crystals or the weather patterns and even the way that a block of ice might melt. And many of his results actually rely on the use of a technique called optimal transport. And curiously enough, this originated in the 18th century when a mathematician was working for Napoleon. Yes, and it is the Napoleon in <laughs> the Abba song. This mathematician was trying to find out an efficient way to build network fortifications. And Figali essentially, the optimal transport problem is about finding the cheapest way of transporting a distribution of mass from one place to another. And then we come to the final person, Akshay Venkatesh. And he actually, he wasn't awarded for one specific thing, but more profound contributions to a broad range of subjects, such as building connections from number theory to something quite distant, such as algebraic topology or dynamical systems.
2: Well, who knows, Bobby? Maybe you'll be next. Thanks (laughs) for coming along. That was Bobby Seagull. Thanks (laughs) very much. Thank you. We
3: were very disappointed, Bobby, you didn't do a rap for us this time. But we're (laughs) hoping that next time you will.
5: Absolutely. I'll, I'll get
2: one ready. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Izzy Clark. Still to come, a clever trick that African farmers are using to make elephants buzz off and we'll get myth-busting about medical marijuana.
3: Before that, though, we waste about 1.3 billion tonnes of food around the world every single year. But now, a company in Cambridge called Entomics has found some hungry individuals who are not bothered by sell-by dates to feed it all to. These diners, though, are maggots or more accurately fly larvae which will eat thankfully just about anything and when they're well fed they grow very quickly and they turn into a rich source of fat and protein which makes them ideal fish food for farmed salmon in scotland So far, so good. But now, the Entomics team think that their maggot-based meal could find favour with a host of other animals too, helping to recycle wasted food safely. Marika Rotman went to the Entomics Laboratory to speak with their chief scientist and co-founder, Mihal Pipan.
6: We're currently in our biological R&D lab, the Department of Veterinary Medicine in Cambridge. And this is where the magic happens. So um, food waste, things that come off farms, packaging and sorting plants, it's blended. And the insects eat the food waste. They will fatten up. So we're starting with the insects being a sub milligram range, really tiny things that you can barely see. And they can go up to about 300, 350 milligrams even. And that is, you know, almost like a thousand fold increase in weight. So the insects are then taken aside and processed to create uh, a meal that can be then blended into a final feed for any particular animal.
4: Ah, and can I see a sample of this meal that you've developed?
6: Sure, I can show you a few that we have here. Actually, they smell really good, surprisingly. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I mean, this is the thing, like, uh, this one doesn't smell bad. I mean, it's not oh, that
4: smells- <laughs> it smells like dog food. <laughs>
6: Oh, no. Dog food, chocolate, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's not probably as bad as you'd expect it to no, be, given that it's maggots feeding on food waste, not the most glamorous of words. And so. it, it looks
4: like dirt, honestly. It doesn't, it doesn't look like much.
6: No, no, exactly. So this is some of the processed samples. Now, yeah, well, potentially oh. I'm also going a bit crazy working with this over the past three years, you know. I, I would say there's a hint of coffee in this.
4: Okay, so since you're the connoisseur, I see that there's a lot of variety in these different samples are you specializing them? What's the next step in this process? Yeah, so
6: this is really what our process is all about. It's taking, you know, the same sort of substrate, the maggots, particularly what we're working with at the moment is the black soldier fly larvae. And then from them, deriving essentially a variety of tailored meals for a particular animal species, and one could even say going to the level of tailoring these formulations to particular stages of those species, so juveniles or adults or, like, senior animals. You know, they obviously have slightly different nutritional requirements, but ultimately quite a lot of it is linked to performing the feeding trials with the animals. Only then can we really realise is all the science that's been done to date and, you know, all the expert opinion going into this, is that actually right? And that really comes down to being good at collecting samples And asking the right questions.
4: Possibly the most important question. Do the fish like this?
6: They haven't complained yet. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Five-star
6: review? Well, I'm not sure if it's a five-star review, but the results have been actually quite favorable. We kind of want to really try some pets soon, cats and dogs from the human side of things, being the person who actually tries these things, <laughs> I would say there's still some room for improvement.
7: But you've eaten this.
6: Well, someone has to. And if I'm not going to do it myself, then how can I expect someone else to do it, right? Currently, it's focused on animals, but you could easily change it to humans as well.
2: Lovely. That was Mia Peepin there, Entomix CEO and Chief Maggot Taster. He was speaking with Marika Ottman.
3: That really is putting your money where your mouth is, isn't it? Now, people who receive repeated knocks on the head, sports players or individuals who get head injured in car accidents and falls, are at higher risk later in life for a form of dementia that's quite similar to Alzheimer's disease. Why this happens, though, no one knew. But Glasgow pathologist Willie Stewart has been studying the brains of patients with a past history of head trauma. He's found deposits of a protein called tau throughout their nervous systems and by studying animals with similar brain injuries it looks like the initial trauma provokes the formation of tau aggregates at the injury site and these then alarmingly promote their own formation elsewhere around the brain spreading along nerve pathways damaging nerve cells and triggering dementia. The good news, though, is that now scientists know this, it might be possible to develop a way to stop it.
1: In many of the studies that have looked at people surviving brain injury, they report that there is an increase in the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, But also, we're getting better at recognising that, that in many of these cases, it's actually a distinct form of dementia different to Alzheimer's disease. And it's one that we call now chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE for short. And that used to be known as Boxer's Dementia
3: now how long after the injury do you tend to see these manifestations
1: well patients who uh, turn up clinically with problems it's often several decades after the injury and that's the problem is what's happened in that time from when they were exposed to brain injury to the development of dementia and what we were doing in our study is looking at people with a shorter period of survival to try and get a picture of that time frame in between so what did you actually do we did two things firstly we looked at material from patients who had survived a brain injury on average about five years after brain injury and looked at what their brains looked like compared to normal aging brains what we found in that was that they had a deposition of an abnormal protein in their brain which we then went on to look at in an animal model to see if we could replicate that and figure out what was happening in these patients so what was the protein that you found there that shouldn't be So what we found was an abnormal protein in the brain or abnormal form of a protein in the brain called tau. And actually, it's a protein that we normally have in our brains to kind of hold the, the structure of the brain together. It's a very important protein. But sometimes, for reasons we don't understand, that protein can become abnormally processed or abnormally folded. And it's that abnormal protein that causes problems down the line. So that's what we were looking for. And we saw this in greater quantities and wider distribution in patients who'd had a brain injury than in normal ageing.
3: So when you say it's in a wider distribution, so rather than just seeing it where their brain was worst affected, you're saying it's everywhere or in more places than just the primary injury site
1: again we were looking at patients who would survived you know quite some number of time after their original injury Um, and what we found was that tau protein was throughout their brain so in normal aging it can be just in tiny spots here and there as part of an aging process but we found it was spread throughout their brain more like you might see in again patients with alzheimer's disease or with cte
3: and was the build-up of the protein associated with some kind of other damage to the brain? As in, can you can you say that where you see that tau protein there's also evidence that the cells are dying or the brain is changing in those areas?
1: So certainly we can say that that abnormal protein is toxic to the, the neurons in the brain and causes further problems but there are also other things happening too I think what what we do though is take those observations in our human material, which is really important, and we take that back into uh, a, a sort of stripped back animal study where we can we can look at specifically what's happening to the neurons at that point
3: so how do you know the tau protein is there and it's damaging the brain in that area rather than some brain was damaged in that area and it left behind some tau protein
1: well that's a brilliant question and that's really what we tried to set out to do because we 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 can see this in alzheimer's disease we can see this in cte and we can now see it in our patients after a single brain injury that they have this abnormal tau protein and our question was did that protein appear as a result of some other process in the brain so so the other damage that the, the injury had done had caused the tau protein to be uh, deposited or is the tau protein actually the real problem and that's, which do you,
3: which do you think it is
1: well that that's what our research i think has probably uncovered to you uh, at least part of the story because what we we can do with the animal model is that we can create a similar injury to what our our patients had, the kind of thing you might get with a car crash. And we can follow the, the progression of that tau pathology over time. And what we found is that it's that abnormal tau protein that appears to migrate through the brain and appears to infect, if you like, the rest of the brain.
3: So there'd be an injury which is centred on, say, one brain region. The injury would trigger the formation of some of this abnormal form of this tau protein and what it would then propagate along the nerve pathways that the injured area is connected to and begin to deposit tau in other areas that are anatomically linked.
1: That's exactly. I mean, that's certainly what our evidence strongly supports. Obviously, this is an initial study showing very strong evidence suggesting that's what's happening. Now what we need to do is is start to do the really clever stuff and figure out exactly what's happening at the cellular level. More importantly, if we can figure this one out, we might actually have a way of, of trying to treat patients and avoid people getting dementia this way. And do your findings inform
3: how we should manage head injury better in the future?
1: Yeah, that's the really exciting thing that that we're taking forward from this research is that here we have a a potential target, an abnormality that that develops at the time of injury that seems to be partly responsible for driving later disease. So this abnormal tau protein formed at the time of injury seems to then go on and propagate through the brain. So if we can in some way figure out a means to uh, stop that happening, potentially what we could do is is prevent the dementia um, developing later down the line.
3: It's a worry, isn't it? Because everyone, I think... I speak for myself as well as everyone else has got some recollection of some kind of head injury at some time in their life so it's a profound worry to think that you may have actually stored up a lot of trouble down the line That was Willie Stewart he's at the University of Glasgow and the study he was talking about has just come out in the journal Brain
2: While we may get exasperated by the plagues of wasps that inevitably arrive alongside summer here in the UK most of our wildlife is relatively easy to control but if you're a farmer in some parts of Africa you might have a much bigger problem to contend with. Elephants. But how can farmers fend them off without harming them? The answer is to prey on their fears. Georgia Mills spoke with the University of Hawaii's Ashna Mafranito.
8: One of the biggest problems that Africa has with the population of elephants is that they basically bulldoze. They are animals that reshape the environment. What is going on right now is that the elephants don't necessarily respect fences and they invade those areas and they cause problems. And elephants raid crops. So when a herd of elephants get into a farm, it can be the destruction of that family's or that village's whole year crop.
9: And this destruction of crops leads to increasing tensions between people and the elephants, which can escalate.
8: Sometimes the elephants get killed.
9: With elephants already endangered from poaching and habitat loss, reducing this conflict is important for everyone involved. So how do you get an elephant to respect a fence?
8: One of the ways that people started playing with was looking at what elephants are afraid of.
9: And it turns out there is something that even the mighty elephant is afraid of. Bees.
8: They are extremely aggressive, protecting their beehives, and they sting the elephants in very, very sensitive areas, especially the trunk and around the eyes and into the ears. So the elephants hate that, and it seems that it works. Like They are really afraid of bees. They are not afraid of elephants or rhinoceros or anything like that, but they are afraid of bees. So what people in Africa started doing, especially the growers, they started putting beehives on the fences, and they found out that the elephants were respecting those fences now.
9: Right. It doesn't sound exactly practical to line your fence with bees then. So what What have you done that's
8: different? One of the things that a bee does when she stings you is that she leaves an alarm pheromone, That is chemical that induces the other bees to come and sting you. So the elephants, they smell that so this study that we did showed that the elephants actually not only can smell the alarm pheromone but they respect the area that has this alarm pheromone.
9: How do you isolate this pheromone? Are you sort of squishing alarmed bees down together? How are you how are you isolating it?
8: <laughs> the alarm pheromone of bees is something that people had studied before and they published the composition of this pheromones years ago. The problem here is that the alarm pheromone has dozens of components, and it was important that we use components that were inexpensive and make them readily available. So we needed to come up with a simplified blend, so we decided to go with a couple of components that were simpler, easier to make, and we thought that could convey that chemical message to the elephant.
9: The team tested out this elephant be gone in the field, spraying the formula under some socks on fences. And 25 out of the 29 elephants that approached the pheromone socks turned and left.
8: When we started having success with the response of the elephants, it was really, really great because it allows us now to have a formulation that is extremely inexpensive, that is affordable for these growers and parks and anyone that is trying to contain the elephants so they can create this chemical fence.
9: Do we have any idea what effect this is going to have on the rest of the ecosystem? Is it going to confuse the bees, maybe?
8: I'm not sure if it's going to confuse the bees necessarily because they usually respond to the alarm pheromone when they are close to the beehives. So uh, maybe if these alarm pheromones are close to beehives, we are going to have an effect, but otherwise I don't see a problem. Uh, in relationship to other animals, I'm not sure. I don't think so. And that's something that in some places is really important to to determine if there are any other species that is being affected by something like this.
2: Well, he's hoping. That was Ajna Mafranito, and that study came out in Current Biology.
8: Meanwhile,
3: if you'd like to find out more about any of the stories we've been covering, the transcripts and the supporting references are on our website. That's nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast.
10: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find
3: out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Izzy Clark. And this week we're putting the medical use of marijuana under the microscope.
11: I saw around one years old that she had started to have some seizure activity Eventually, they got worse as she got older. When she got to two years old, she was having 130 seizures a day. The seizures continued and we tried numerous uh, medications, but unfortunately, they left her with lots of side effects. And at that stage, with Adam Brooks, we decided altogether that we would stop trialing drugs. Obviously, this was quite a shock to hear at that stage and realising that actually we're going to live our life with epilepsy. She generally is a happy child, she's loving, but obviously she's having these blackouts every few seconds that stop her retaining the information. She did actually start to say, you know, a few words when she was younger. It was garden and baby brother, but then her epilepsy got so bad and we never heard them again. Um, And now she only says yes and no. So that's what we're left with. I feel that her world is very unsafe and confusing for her and I just feel that if cannabis was available to us and we could at least try, then we could see if it works. It would be nice to do it with full medical support so that we don't have to be doing something illegal. We should all be entitled to the treatment that is available. Um, None of us should have to live with epilepsy when there is a treatment there for it. Faith, describing what's happening to her daughter and how she's keen
2: to try cannabis oil to control severe epilepsy. And in this half hour, we'll investigate the story of cannabis, find out how it works, talk to the people who are growing it quite legally in Britain and hear why it might be able to help people like Faith's daughter.
3: Now, cannabis or marijuana comes from the cannabis sativa plant, usually in the form of dried leaves, flowers and stems. There are hundreds of different chemicals floating around in cannabis, and we don't actually know what most of them do.
2: But the ones that are of interest to us are the cannabinoids. There are a hundred or so in the plant.
3: The two that we know the most about, though, are cannabidiol and tetrahydrocannabinol. They're shortened to CBD and THC. These are also the cannabinoids present in the largest quantities, with THC being responsible for the high that recreational users of the drug are looking for.
2: These molecules are very similar in shape to chemicals used in our own bodies when some groups of nerve cells communicate, and it's by mimicking the actions of the brain's own chemical signals that cannabinoids have their effect. But
3: what's the history of cannabis? Where did its use originate? And when did it become illegal? Gary Potter is a senior lecturer in criminology at Lancaster University.
10: The medicinal properties of cannabis have been recognised for at least 5,000 years. Uh, They're referred to in ancient Indian medical texts going back to at least 900 BC, uh, referred to in ancient Chinese medical texts going back to at least the 1st century AD. It came to the UK around the mid-19th century, brought to Britain from Calcutta, and then widely prescribed for a number of medical complaints, particularly migraines and chronic pain. It was banned for recreational use in 1928 following international agreements to outlaw cannabis.
2: So why was it banned?
10: Initially, cannabis was banned in recognition of international agreements to try and control certain narcotics. International discussions were mostly focused on heroin, opium, and to an extent, cocaine and coca. Cannabis was brought into those discussions just by a, a minority of countries that were concerned with some of the moral implications of cannabis use amongst their populations.
2: Well, that's interesting. So how have things progressed since then?
10: After 1928 and the initial ban for recreational use, cannabis remained clinically available in the UK until it was reclassified and prohibited under the Misuse of Drugs Act in 1971. The Misuse of Drugs Act was again a follow-on from international law from the UN Single Convention of 1961. And again, the placing of cannabis in the tightest restrictions internationally was particularly led by America and a couple of other countries and not really considered by the rest of the world.
2: Is there some sort of scale of legalisation?
10: So within the Misuse of Drugs Act in the UK law, drugs are placed under different schedules. Cannabis is currently a Schedule 1 drug. A Schedule 1 is reserved for the drugs that are perceived to have absolutely no medical benefit. The placing of cannabis as Schedule 1 was contrary to the available scientific evidence even at the time, but was ultimately a political decision. Since then, there's been an increase in scientific and medical evidence uh, and the current discussions are about moving some cannabis products into Schedule 2. Schedule 2 drugs are still very tightly controlled but are recognised to have some medical benefits and therefore may be available for prescription by doctors for certain conditions.
2: And is it this discussion of progressing medical cannabis onto Schedule 2 what we're hearing so much about?
10: Yes, the current proposal by the government is to move some cannabis medical preparations into Schedule 2. Not to move cannabis as a whole into Schedule 2, but just some preparations of cannabis. But at the moment, it's very narrowly focused on epilepsy and maybe a couple of other conditions.
2: Who actually uses medical cannabis?
10: It's hard to be sure because as a controlled substance, people don't necessarily admit to their use. But research would suggest that thousands and possibly tens of thousands of people in the UK are using cannabis for some kind of medical benefit. This particularly includes conditions such as chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, nausea reduction, eating disorders, sleeping disorders, anxiety disorders, epilepsy, various neurodegenerative disorders, uh, migraines, schizophrenia, even cancer, amongst other things.
2: And we've seen it in the news quite a lot recently. So what are the varying attitudes towards medical cannabis?
10: Well, I think that we would recognise that there are some people that deny any medical benefits at all. They point to the current legal system. They say it's scheduled as a Schedule 1 drug, which implies that there is no medical benefit. And they take the law as as based, if you like, on, on the evidence. Other people, based on anecdotal and historical evidence and personal experience, would suggest that cannabis is useful for a huge range of medical conditions. But perhaps a sort of middle ground there is that increasingly there is good scientific evidence as well as anecdotal and historical evidence that for certain conditions for certain people certain preparations of cannabis are objectively beneficial.
2: Now I'm glad you mentioned that because it's been approved in the US but what's the legal situation in the UK like? Are attitudes changing in the current climate?
10: Attitudes are changing. We have seen a number of countries around the world and a number of states in America, although not America as a country, that are recognising the medical benefits and are making provision for legal supply of cannabis for medical purposes. So people in the UK are seeing this happening elsewhere, and it's happening in some highly industrialised democratic countries such as America and Canada, and people are saying, well, it's clearly not a black and white issue. These other places are recognising the medical benefits. Why not here? And then, of course, we've had a couple of very high-profile media cases recently, particularly around epilepsy, the two young boys with the serious forms of epilepsy. And that, of course, has attracted media attention. So you've got the focus on those high-profile issues and the background of change around the world.
2: Given your expertise, do you think it will be legalised?
10: Well, we've seen suggestions or movement already to legalise very limited preparations of cannabis for very limited conditions. At the moment, most of the conversation has been around epilepsy. I think that is a first step. If nothing else, it acknowledges that there are at least some medical benefits of cannabis. And moving even some preparations to schedule two will open up research into other uses of cannabis for medical reasons. So I think we maybe will see an increase in the availability of cannabis or cannabis derivatives for an increasing number of medical conditions. But I think we'll still be a long way off from any discussion about legalising for recreational purposes. And the government have made it clear that that's not on the agenda at the moment.
2: Gary Potter from Lancaster University. It's
3: interesting, isn't it, how there is this mismatch between what the law says and what the science says.
2: Yeah, but what's the science saying about the effects?
3: Well, exactly. And we're going to find out because Harry Sumner, who's Professor of Substance Use at Liverpool John Moores University, is with us. Harry, when someone uses cannabis, what does it actually do in the body?
12: Well, as you mentioned in your intro to this piece, uh, cannabis itself is a very complex plant and it contains hundreds of different chemicals, most notably the cannabinoids. And you've already spoken about CBD and THC, which is the cannabinoids that most people are familiar with if they know anything about cannabis. But cannabis also contains lots of other chemicals as well so other cannabinoids cbg thca cbn the list is almost endless but also other aromatic chemicals as well called terpenes and this gives cannabis its distinctive smell but when we think about whether it's the recreational use of cannabis or the therapeutic effects most of the focus has been on cbd and thc Now, interestingly, the body has its own cannabinoid system. And actually, one of the first endogenous cannabinoids, the body's own cannabinoids, was a chemical called anandamide, uh, which is derived from the Sanskrit word for joy and bliss, which is rather appropriate. But the body has two main sets of receptors so these are these chemical locks which cannabinoids and other chemicals act upon so there's the cb1 receptors and these are located in the central nervous system and these control functions such as pain memory appetite or even muscle tone as well now there's another set of cannabinoid receptors the cb2 receptors and these are in the periphery and even in some cells associated with the immune system So going back to those two chemicals, THC and CBD, THC acts in the central nervous system and therefore has profound effects on neuronal function and perception and all of those other functions that I mentioned. CBD doesn't have a psychoactive effect because it's acting at CB2 receptors. And interestingly, this is why CBD is not controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act, which Gary was just talking about.
3: And that's why you can buy it in health food stores for example so basically what you're saying is you have in your body a system of communication between cells including brain cells which have on their surfaces these receptors or docking stations that these chemicals bind to and cannabis subverts the system we have naturally in place it it, uh, triggers it artificially which is why it then produces these effects
12: That's right. And uh, we know a bit about THC pharmacology, so it has direct pharmacological effects. We know less about CBD. It doesn't seem to have this direct effect on those receptors, but it may seek to uh, modulate the function of other hormones and neurotransmitters as well. We're finding a lot more about it.
3: Does it matter Uh, how you take the drug into your body? Because obviously there are a range of different routes in. You could eat this, for example. You could swallow the oil that people are talking about. Some people also smoke these drugs. So does it matter? to how you take it.
12: Yeah, route of administration is very important. So, lots of routes of administration. So, if you smoke it, it's inhaled, it's absorbed through the lungs, you feel the effects within a few minutes. If you eat a cannabis product, it needs to be absorbed through the gut and then to get into the bloodstream, to the brain. And that can take, you know, half an hour or an hour. Anecdotally, some patients also report, people who are using it for medicinal purposes, that the different routes of administration also have different subtle, uh, subtly different medicinal effects as well but that is largely anecdotal and
3: when we're talking about things like relief of pain and so on do we know which of these different systems that the the central nervous system or the peripheral effects are most important in achieving those benefits
12: well we think for pain relief then the cb1 system is primarily important there because they are receptor sites these locks which are directly located in the central nervous system now, there's lots of interest in the use of cannabinoids and cannabis derived medicines for treatment of epilepsy, for example. Now, those, some of the effective drugs that we have there, are working on the CB2 system, which are outside of the central nervous system. And therefore, they're having some novel and unusual effects, which you wouldn't usually associate with anticonvulsants that are usually prescribed.
3: Now, we've dwelled very much on the sort of medical side of this, Harry, but what about the, the sort of psychological and emotional consequences of people using things like cannabis?
12: Well, we know a lot about the potential negative effects of so-called recreational cannabis use. So if we're thinking about what the potential negative effects of medicinal use are, then there is already a body of knowledge there. Now, I think it's it is quite important to separate some of those harmful effects with recreational use from medically supervised use. Now, a lot has been discussed popularly about mental health impact of cannabis and I think sometimes there's a tendency to completely disperse count the mental health effects but there is some good evidence to show that particularly high risk individuals maybe individuals who had a greater susceptibility to psychosis for example that regularly using cannabis in whatever form whether that's oral whether that's smoking is not a good idea and regularly using cannabis particularly at early ages can increase the risks of experienced psychotic symptomatology but some people
3: argue harry sorry to interrupt that people who are at risk of developing Those conditions are just self-medicating and they're taking the cannabis because they're beginning to experience mental ill health and it makes them feel better rather than the cannabis comes first and causes the mental ill health downstream.
12: I think there's probably a lot of truth in that perception. We do know that from some of the surveys and studies that have been done, that when particularly young people in their early teens, when they begin to experience some of these symptoms, unusual symptoms, they do report that smoking cannabis can actually make them feel normal in inverted commas. There's also some interesting research which also suggests that even the tobacco that people mix cannabis with in this country in joints might also increase the risk of psychotic symptomatology. So I think the exact mechanisms are unclear, but I think there's a very... Simple public health message, particularly for young people, is to delay use of cannabis and also to reduce frequency of use as well. Regularly using cannabis is not good for your mental health.
3: So far we've talked about side effects in one particular tissue, brain tissue. If you've got this wide distribution of receptors all around the body, are there side effects in other organs and tissues? And therefore would a person experience things other than just maybe mental ill health if they abused cannabis?
12: I think the honest answer to that is we don't quite know. If we look at some of the clinical studies which have been undertaken with some of the pharmaceutical preparations, then patients do report side effects. These can be uh, side effects related to some of the psychoactive effects, so confusion, many memory problems or excess sleepiness. But then also some patients are reporting physiological side effects as well, gastric disturbances, for example. So the potential is there, but I think we don't know a lot about this and how to counter this because we know so little about how cannabis-related products are actually working. So we don't really know a huge amount about the pharmacology.
3: There's a lot to learn, isn't there, Harry? Thank you very much. That's Harry Sumner. He is from Liverpool John Moores University.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with me, Izzy Clark. This week we're putting medical marijuana under the microscope and so far we've heard how it works but how do we go from a plant containing hundreds of different active molecules to a safe drug where the doses can be easily and reproducibly measured out? One company who grow cannabis and turn it into medicines including a preparation for epilepsy called Epidiolex is GW Pharmaceuticals. Isabel Cochrane went to see them.
0: I'm Stephen Wright. I'm senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals, having been chief medical officer for the last 14 years. In 1998, the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee produced a report which started from the observation that people were using cannabis allegedly as a medicine. And they felt that rather than simply uh, clamp down on people who were using cannabis for medicinal purposes, it would be better to see if there is a genuinely medicinal use for cannabis or for components of the cannabis plant. And GW was set up at that time specifically to try and meet the requests to determine whether there is genuine medicinal value in the cannabis plant or its components.
13: It's not unusual for a medication to originate from a plant. For example, the active component of aspirin is also found in willow trees. But taking a tablet for a headache is clearly quite different from chewing on a piece of willow bark. Similarly, taking a cannabis-derived medicine for a complex medical condition is a million miles away from smoking a joint. So how do we get from pot to pill?
0: There are three main pillars of drug development, quality, safety and efficacy. So the first of them, quality, means can you guarantee that the process you use for producing your medicine produces exactly the same medicine one week as it does another week. When you're developing medicine based on a plant, that is a particular challenge because plants have many, many components, each of which has to be present in the same proportion with every batch that you produce. And, uh, and it's a challenge that has to be satisfied not only in the finished product that you produce, but also at every stage in its production. So the plants we produce have an essentially identical chemical composition from batch to batch, week to week, uh, growth to growth. Of course, within that, uh, you have to recognise that in the UK, which is where we grow our plants, cannabis is a Schedule One drug. So everything that we've done has been under license and under inspection by the Home Office.
13: Once the quality of your drug is assured, meaning you're able to extract it from your plants and manufacture it reliably, the other two pillars Stephen mentioned, safety and efficacy, are determined as with any other pharmaceutical drug in preclinical and clinical trials. The end product of this process in the case of Epidiolex is pure CBD as a syrup. So you can just pop it on a spoon and swallow it. On the surface of it, sounds like cannabis oil. So is this much different to the various medicinal cannabis preparations you can get on the street?
0: The material that has been seized by police forces around the world uh, quite demonstrably is more and more and more rich in THC, which is what's sought by recreational users. So I think it's become more difficult to um, determine what people mean by medicinal marijuana or medicinal cannabis since the plant has been manipulated by growers with a particular aim in mind, when people have gone through a systematic analysis of cannabis oils and other products sold sort of on the street, what they found is that around half of them contained no cannabinoids at all, let alone the cannabinoids that they claim to contain. And I think this emphasizes you have to ensure the quality of the medicine that you're giving to patients. Otherwise, it's tinkering. You don't know what you're doing.
13: So perhaps, as you might imagine, the key difference between a pharmaceutical-grade cannabis preparation and the stuff you get on the street is that in the case of the medicine, you know exactly what's in it. You're guaranteed to have the active ingredient in there, but you should also be safe from getting high from your medicine, since the levels of THC and CBD, even in the plants themselves, are tightly controlled. But... In the eyes of the regulatory bodies, this does not change the fact that the medication is derived from a plant, which is used mainly as a recreational
0: drug. There are certain preconceptions about some medicines that mean the body of evidence you have to produce in order to demonstrate safety and efficacy may be a bit bigger than you might have to produce in other circumstances and I personally think that uh, medicines based on cannabis do fall into that category, we are also obliged during development to show whether a a drug has a liability for abuse. So are people likely to abuse it? And part of that is, does it get diverted away from the patient into the general population? Now, it's very clear, and the Home Office is very comfortable, through their advisory body, which is called the Advisory Committee on the Misuse of Drugs, that that, has not happened with our cannabis-containing medicines. And that's in marked contrast to some other medicines. But what does the public think? I think the general public probably has the same preconception that a medicine based on cannabis may get you high. And I think there has been a duty on us to produce a very substantial body of evidence that it doesn't. Fortunately, we do have the tools, the measurement techniques, which have enabled us... To overcome that particular hurdle.
13: So what can we expect in the future?
0: There are a lot of cannabinoids and we believe that a number of them may have therapeutic potential. So what we've done and continue to do is to take out individual components of the plant or combinations of them uh, and to explore the therapeutic potential of those individual components or combinations in our preclinical models.
2: Stephen Wright there from GW Pharmaceuticals.
3: So how do drugs like Epidiolex work and whom might they be able to help? Hannah Cock is Professor of Epilepsy and Medical Education at St George's in London. Hannah, before we talk about the drugs, let's talk about the condition. What actually is going on
14: in someone who has epilepsy? So epilepsy is not one disorder. It's hundreds and hundreds of different types of disorder. But it's essentially it's a disorder of the brain characterised by recurrent, unprovoked seizures and by a range of associated biological, sociological and psychological consequences. So things like memory problems, difficulty functioning, anxiety and so on. There's an enormous spectrum from people who are, essentially 100% normal other than for the few minutes when they have their seizures to people with much more complex and very frequent events. And what about the mechanism
3: of their epilepsy is it that that means it might be amenable to being managed with cannabis?
14: So I don't think we know the answer to that question yet with respect to epidilex or indeed any other drug. The drugs are being tried in particular rare syndromes at the moment but that doesn't mean that the drug won't prove to be effective in other types of epilepsy in the future. So do we
3: have any idea as to what it might be doing to the nervous system in order to make the seizures less serious? Do we understand actually how it influences epilepsy when people use these agents?
14: So with respect to cannabidiol, which is the C B D, which is the one that's being best studied rather than THC, we don't know how it works in epilepsy. It doesn't seem to be by the C B one and C B two receptors that were mentioned earlier. It might be affecting some of the brain's own mechanisms that stop seizures being there all of the time. You know, most people with epilepsy aren't fitting hundred percent of the time. We have our own internal switch that stops seizures, so there's a lot of interest that it might be influencing that, but we don't
3: I wondered if, because people are swallowing this, whether rather than it going into the brain and having an effect, it might be influencing perhaps the bacteria in the intestine, the microbiome, the nervous system that supplies the intestine, therefore other parts of how the body is working, and that in turn is having a knock-on effect, which is having benefits with how the brain responds?
14: There's absolutely no evidence to support that. I mean, epilepsy is a disorder of the brain um, and actually these drugs, they're very, very fat soluble and so they do get penetrate the brain very readily even when you swallow them.
3: So what might be the long-term consequences for someone who uses one of these cannabis-like agents if they treat their epilepsy with it? Because they're going to be doing that chronically for a long period of time, aren't they?
14: Yeah, and I think with respect to the agents that contain THC, we do know that long-term use is associated with problems with damage to memory and thinking to mental health and brain structure, particularly in children who have seemed to be very vulnerable to this. With cannabidiol, I mean, that's why doctors and scientists have focused so much on cannabidiol rather than the THC components. And we don't yet know what the long-term consequences might be because these are relatively new trials. I mean, that people have been taking them, some people for up to a few years, but we don't know what the long-term consequences might be yet.
3: It's rather worrying to me that we're considering changing the law and perhaps allowing people to to try these agents admittedly in people with severe disabling epilepsy um, when we don't
14: actually know how they work but any new drug I mean any advance in medicine there's always a degree of uncertainty when it's first licensed and first available because by definition there won't have been decades of evidence and that's why it's so important that if people do do take these drugs it's part of a well regulated controlled study and with the knowledge of their health professionals so that we can monitor in the long term what the side effects might be we do also know that even in the short term there's a bit of an urban myth that these drugs don't have side effects. They do. One in three of the people in the studies who took cannabidiol did have side effects like diarrhoea, reduced appetite and vomiting and in about one in 23 people there were quite serious side effects. So it's not that these are a blanket safe much better than existing drugs. We don't know that yet.
3: So not to be taken lightly. Hannah, thank you very much. There's Hannah Cox. She is from St George's University of London.
2: So the take-home message is yes, there is truth in the idea that cannabis-based products have medicinal value in some cases for some medical conditions, but on the flip side, there is still a whole lot we do not know about. Thank you to Harry Sumner and to Hannah Cock who joined us in the studio today and also to Gary Potter and Stephen Wright and to Faith for sharing her very moving story with us.
3: Now to finish up, Adam Murphy cleans up this mystery for Martin.
1: What's the science behind non-stick pans? What prevents the sticking? It's a question that leaves people stuck.
7: Why does a single layer of black stuff on a pan turn it from an after-dinner eldritch cleaning nightmare to, well, still a chore, but a much easier one? On the forum, Thomas Sy says one word, Teflon. And they might be onto something. To get the answer, we put the question to someone who wouldn't slip up Material scientist Jess Wade of Imperial College London to see what she had to say.
15: In the 1930s, Roy Plunkett, a chemist at DuPont, was trying to find a new refrigerant material. At the time, sulphur dioxide and ammonia were used in fridges, but they were killing people in their homes. One day, Plunkett was making an alternative, a safer gas called tetrafluoroethylene, and he stored it in super cold cylinders, minus 80 Celsius. When he went to chlorinate it, he found out the gas wasn't a gas anymore, but had turned into a white powder, which was resistant to heat, chemically inert, and super slippery. Although he had to saw the gas canister in half to find that out.
7: So Plunkett had made a mistake, but like any good inventor, he was about to turn it into something revolutionary.
15: Plunkett had created polytetrafluoroethylene, which we know today as Teflon. Metals that we make pans from, like stainless steel, aren't actually perfectly smooth. If we look at them with a microscope, you actually see lots of cracks and holes. When they heat up, the metal expands, food sneaks into the cracks, dries up and makes them tricky to clean.
7: As anyone who's spent an evening scrubbing an old metal pot can attest to. But coating it in Teflon changes the game.
15: But if your pan is coated with Teflon, the metal surface becomes much smoother. So smooth, in fact, that geckos can't stick to it. And geckos can even stick to glass. That's because PTFE is made of long chains of fluorine and carbon, really strongly bonded together. That means they don't want to interact with anything, even water.
7: Things that repel water like this are called hydrophobic. And it's Teflon's hydrophobic nature and really low friction that make it so non-stick.
15: Teflon's not entirely perfect. If the temperature goes above 260 Celsius, it starts to break apart, releasing fluorocarbons into the air. And if you cook mega hot regularly, flakes of it can sneak off, stopping your pan from being non-stick. Me and my dad love our non-stick pan.
7: And how does the Teflon stick onto the pan in the first place? Well, that bit's easy. You just need to really, really rough up the pan first. Thank you to Jess for giving us something to ponder while we fry our breakfast. And while we're pondering... Next week, we'll be answering this question from Jeff. It is often
1: stated that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all of the beaches on Earth. My question is, who counted?
2: Sand on that note. If you know the answer, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Find us on Facebook, tweet at The Naked Scientist. We're also on Instagram now, at Naked Scientist, and join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum.
3: And that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Isabel Cochran who put the programme together and do be sure to join us next week when we're going to be on the historical Waterloo battlefield where veterans of modern wars, many of them with disabilities and mental scars, are joining archaeologists to excavate the remains of one of the most important conflicts in European history. Join us to find out what they uncovered next time. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.